The pandemic has hit us hard, and healthcare workers are our first and last lines of defense. So while they're looking out for us, who's looking out for them? There has never been a more critical time to address the mental health of our healthcare community. This is Lift the Mask, voices of heroes in the silent pandemic. Join the Quell Foundation and Hartford Health's Dr. John Santopietro as we provide a podcast for healthcare workers discussing their psychological traumas associated with continual exposure to the COVID-19 pandemic. Hello, my name is Dr. Jennifer Ferrand. I'm honored today to act as guest host for my friend, colleague, and regular host of this podcast, Dr. John Santapietro. I'm a board-certified clinical health psychologist with 16 years of experience in Hartford HealthCare. And much like Dr. Santapietro, I've spent the past year working directly with patients experiencing and coping with the ramifications of the pandemic and also acting in a leadership role addressing the wellness of healthcare workers to ensure their safety, adjustment, and professional fulfillment during these uncertain times. I'm honored to join the team at the Quell Foundation as they continue to lift up the voices of our healthcare professionals who are still living with the consequences of the COVID-19 pandemic. It's my pleasure to welcome you to Lift the Mask, Voices of Heroes in a Silent Pandemic. Let's get started. So why don't we start with having you tell us a little bit about your role? I think you're the first pharmacist that we've had on the podcast. So I think our listeners would really love to hear about what it's like to be a clinical pharmacist during COVID. Okay. I graduated from pharmacy school in 2018, and I went straight into doing a first-year residency at a hospital that served East Tennessee and Southwest Virginia. I learned so much in that one year. They really like say that that year of residency is like five years of pharmacy practice and experience. So I learned a ton in that year. And after that, I moved and started working in a hospital in Virginia. And that's where I was when the main part of COVID kind of hit our area. So it was a smaller hospital and Just being a pharmacist in this pandemic, it's something that I never really thought I would see in my career. It was so crazy for us. Just our main focus was trying to make things as easy on the nurses um, as possible as far as do they have to go in and administer meds three different times that day? Can we put them all together and, and cut down on trips, you know, in a medication sense? for them to, as far as conserving PPE or saving their energy for all these trips in and out of the rooms. So that was really one of the big things that we tried to do. But then another really interesting thing for the pharmacy side was we had to really think about potential drug shortages that were going to be coming up. We get a lot of our drugs, you know, shipped in from overseas and things like that. And so Nobody really knew what it was going to look like. And we were just going through so many drugs because we had, you know, patients on the vent at a higher rate than we'd ever really seen before. And so that just requires a lot of drugs to keep those patients comfortable and sedated. I have to imagine that pharmacy is almost like the gatekeeper. And what was that like for you? Because I have to imagine, you know, you, you guys didn't know what medications to even use. 
you're exactly right. Like pharmacy is such a gatekeeper when it comes to, especially antibiotics. We didn't have 24-7 ID coverage or infectious disease coverage. And so we're getting a lot of questions as far as that stuff comes and, you know, trying to make sure we're conserving our antibiotics and things are just changing rapidly. So the first drug regimen that we had was from Desivere. And so, you know, day to day, it felt like our criteria was changing and only certain patients could get remdesivir and we had to make sure that the patients that were being ordered remdesivir actually fit that criteria and trying to keep in constant communication with our providers on who is a candidate for this treatment. And the same thing kind of went as treatment options became more and more available as far as the monoclonal antibodies and things like that. And so really just trying to keep up with this constant culture of change as more information is being learned and more supplies are coming in and things like that. Just really, it took just such good communication and like team effort to make sure that we were getting those treatment options to patients who qualified and keeping everybody up to date on as far as how much we have and what we can use and what's coming and what's changed and everything. So yeah, it was such a crazy time to just like try to keep up and we're constantly even, even not treatment options for that as far as, you know, drugs that we use to cut down on the likelihood of patients getting clots and things like that. Like it was always just a concern and trying to figure out what's the best way to treat these people. And so, yeah, it just, that communication was like no other time before. Sure. Yeah. I was just thinking about how challenging it must have been to be an early career professional <laughs> trying to navigate at least three huge things. One is the sort of changing landscape of figuring out what to actually do to treat the patients and then figuring out how to sort of navigate changing policies and procedures in your organization and supporting your staff, your providers and your nurses in addition to treating patients. That just sounds like so much to navigate. Yeah, it was a lot, but that being a smaller hospital, it felt like much of a more close-knit group. Um, And we always had so I work for a chain of hospitals, a group of hospitals. And so we have big hospitals that are level one trauma centers. And that's where I work now. And then we have smaller hospitals. And so it was so good for us to be able to be in constant communication, even with mm-hmm. those bigger hospitals to say, mm-hmm. OK, like you guys are seeing more. What are you doing? Especially when it came down to shortages and we needed specialists that knew a little bit more than us that we were able to just bounce ideas off of and things like that. So just that whole, like, it felt so close and tight knit, but we had bigger resources to reach out to. And as a whole, you know, hospital group, we had information sharing like never before. Yeah. You know, a a number of our podcast guests have said something like this, that like people really rose to the challenge. And not only, it sounds like within your hospital system, there was improvements in communication and teamwork, but that also probably with other hospital systems, there had to be increased communication and teamwork and collaboration as well. Yeah, I think honestly, that's the most encouraging thing that has come out of this whole pandemic is just seeing how we can come together as a team and communicate just to make things easier on each other and to make sure everybody's on the same page. 
and just really learn how important that is and how much it can make everyone's lives easier if we just communicate. Yeah. So tell me, Heather, what were some of the hardest parts about this experience for you personally in terms of your work life? I am an only child and I'm very, very close to my family. I was only 30 minutes away from them, you know, and I'm used to spending a lot of time with them. And so when the pandemic hit, I wanted them to know exactly how important it was to be very safe. And so we kind of talked about that and we decided, you know, I'm not going to go around them. If I was, I would stand out in the yard while they sat on the porch or something. They would come by my house and I would stand in the garage and they would stay in their truck, things like that. So that was definitely hard. And I just kind of refill my cup is by hanging out with my family and my friends and stuff. So that was definitely, definitely tough. Mm. You kind of had to just figure out new ways and get creative on how to stay close and feel like you're, you know, hanging out like you always would. Probably the hardest part, well, absolutely the hardest part. um, My dad actually ended up passing with COVID and I can kind of delve into that. So my dad was 59 years old and really relatively healthy. Um, He did have a little bit of kidney disease and we stayed on top of it. He was doing perfectly fine. And when this all started, I had a very honest conversation with him and told him, you know, if you get COVID, it will not be easy on you. There's a huge chance that you would need dialysis. And that was really a scary thought for him. He's one that was always, always running around and busy and kept his hands busy and fixing everything and doing stuff for people. And so that thought of dialysis, you know, forever was really scary to him, just thinking that he would have to sit in a chair for three hours, three times a week or whatever, you know. So so he was always very careful. He was an electrician and, you know, those are pretty essential. <laughs> and so he kept working, but always wore his mask and was very careful to all the precautions and everything. And in November, he ended up just one weekend didn't feel very good at all, didn't do a bunch. And that's just not like him. So we ended up finally getting him to the hospital and his sats were super low. We were in the seventies, just did not feel good at all. Was he at your hospital? He was actually in a a smaller hospital in Johnson city. It's kind of in East Tennessee. And so that was closer to their house. So they went on there They got him back, got him kind of settled down, and um, he was able to go on oxygen, and they brought his levels back up and started dexamethasone then, which was, you know, one of the things that I would absolutely have recommended had I been able to be there. And so, you know, I rush and meet my mom in the parking lot. You know, they won't let her inside. They won't let me inside. So we're in separate cars, you know, just trying to talk to each other and wait. We knew they were doing a rapid test on him. So really just waiting for any updates. Uh, So uh, long story short, kind of fast forwarding, um, he was positive. He ended up staying in the ICU and needed high flow oxygen, ended up just requiring more and more oxygen. You know, we would text him and stuff and just I would tell him, you know, dad, you've got to try to lay on your stomach as much as you can, you know, because we knew that proning was really helping to delay or hopefully avoid patients being on the ventilator at all. And so, you know, just constantly texting him and encouraging him, you know, you're doing great. I know this is tough. It's kicking your butt, but you're tough. You know, you're going to be out of there soon. So 
we kept eye on his labs. I was able to sign them up for an app that our hospital uses to where you can see all your test results and things like that. So I was keeping an eye on his labs, you know, seeing as much as I possibly could. And were you working throughout all this? So I had actually just had to use up some paid time off. And so it just so happens that the timing worked out perfectly. I was off for two weeks. I had never had that much time off in my whole entire life. So yeah, I'm a true believer in, you know, that God has plans bigger than we can Mm -hmm. ever imagine. Mm -hmm. And so I had no idea that then I would need that time off, but God did. So I was actually off, which was probably made it even harder because I was just obsessing over like, what would I be looking up? You know, if this was any other patient, what would I look? Is there anything I'm missing? And he was getting the best possible care. And I was so blessed. You know, the nurses never got aggravated with me calling and asking for updates or they would call me, you know, without asking. And we were in constant communication and I knew they were talking to him and hanging out with him as much as they could, you know, and just encouraging him as well. And that meant the world to me. So fast forward a little bit on a Friday, they ended up having to intubate him. He was just really tiring out. You know, it's a lot of work on a body. And so they called me and saying they were going to have to intubate him. And, And to me, that was very scary. I knew that once a patient would go on the vent, their chances of survival really decreased. And I've seen a million intubations, but I just couldn't be there. And I couldn't see him be intubated and him be stable after that. And so that was so hard. It's just that whole process was very hard for me to take my pharmacist brain out and just leave my daughter brain in. It was very hard to be, you know, the family member of a patient and not be just the pharmacist. So that was definitely a process. So they ended up intubating him and they sent him on over to the bigger hospital in the area that I actually work at now. He was being taken care of by a doctor that I actually worked at at my smaller hospital. And so that was so reassuring that I knew that doctor. I knew he was amazing. So I had no doubts at all that he was getting everything he needed and more. The nurses there constantly talked to him, even though he was sedated and on a vent, you know, um, Things with his kidneys were really crashing. He ended up being on continuous renal replacement therapy or a type of dialysis we called CRT. And so that was really tough. And we were actually lucky enough to be able to go in, garb up, and spend just a little bit of time with him. It was such a roller coaster with him just being pretty good one day and pretty bad the next day, and then pretty good one day and pretty bad. It was just this vicious cycle of constantly feeling on the edge. Yeah. And where were you in your thinking? Did you think at this point that he would recover or were you concerned that he might not? I think I was being really naively optimistic. If this was any other patient, I would have been like, oh gosh, you know, this is bad. And we had discussions of DNR. And at one point we made him DNR. Um, He ended up having an issue with his blood um, that we think was a COVID related issue where his platelets were so low. We were afraid that if something happened and he needed to be coded, meaning CPR and all the things, Mm -hmm. it would probably be even harder on his body. So we ended up making him DNR at that point. And that was one of the hardest things, you know, I've ever done. You always think when you work in the hospital and you see these conversations going on in families all the time that 
you know, you'll know when it's time and it will be an easier decision for you, not because it'll be easier losing your loved one, but you know what's best at that point. And you've seen it. You've seen how physically tough CPR is on a body. And so I always thought, you know, I'll know when the time's right. And I think I knew, but I think I was in denial. Um, Same thing goes with labs, you know, as labs kept looking worse and worse every day. And it got to the point where I just, I wouldn't even get on there and look at his labs because I was so afraid of what it was going to say the next day, you know, how can it get any worse? And so that was really, really tough for me. But he was in the hospital a total of 16 days, I believe. And, um, it just was a constant roller coaster of yeah. clinging on to any hope that we had. And he never was stable enough to have CTs or MRIs or any kind of scans to see kind of what was going on in his brain. And so we got to the point one day where he no longer had any cranial nerve reflexes. And that was really, really hard to hear. And that was the point where, you know, my mom and I both knew you know, at that point, that wasn't my dad anymore. He would have never wanted that quality of life. He was a firecracker. And so um, luckily, we were able to be there with him. And um, we made him come for measures only. And um, they came in and extubated him. And we just, we held his hand and, you know, just talked to him and just thank him for all the good memories that we had you know and just he was you know the best dad that God could have ever picked for me you know and um, he was an awesome awesome human being and we knew that but even you know during the funeral and all the days after so many people would come up to us and say you know that he had paid their bill at the electrical supply company that he he worked at and just little things that he would have never, ever, ever told us, you know, he did it for the right reason. He didn't do it to be boastful about it. And he didn't help people for that reason. So yeah, but he passed very peacefully. It was exactly the way that he would have wanted it. And you were there with him? We were, yeah, we were all garbed up, but that was okay. You know, just it meant so much to me that he didn't have to, you know, pass and just being lonely. You know, I, I really believe that he knew we were there and that helped us so much to be able to be there. Oh, I'm so sorry. What a <laughs> tremendous, tremendous loss of an incredible person. I can't imagine what it's like to be a healthcare worker during a pandemic and having to go through this with a very close family member. Yeah, it was honestly the toughest thing I've ever been through. You know, I was super close to my dad. And then, you know, I go back to work and the pandemic didn't stop just because I was sad. (laughs) It kept on and we were in, we were in the thickest of it in our area during that time. Shortly after my dad passed, there ended up having to be refrigerator trucks that were parked outside of the hospital where he passed, you know, and and people were still just denying it. And it broke my heart. You know, I just, I wanted to go up to people in the grocery store who had no mask on and be like, this is my dad. He's 59 and he just passed. Like, can you please just wear a mask? It's not asking too much, you know? And so I go back to work and there's people coding and everything, but my coworkers are so good to me and, mm. you know, offered to 
you know, if I needed to step away for a second, you know, they would cover for me and just constantly asking, you know, are you okay? Is there something we can do? You know, and that meant so much to me. So again, like I just, I'm such a believer in, you know, God knew that all this was going to happen before we even knew COVID was a thing. And so, well, all that was just set up perfectly. Oh, yes. And you had a really good team that was really helped to support you during the process. But I wonder, what did you do to take care of yourself during this incredible period of grief? Yeah, it was really weird. And I didn't really know how to make myself and my grieving process priority. I'm just, I'm used to kind of pour my cup out for everybody else. And so I've never really had to make myself priority, but Mm -hmm. I have some of the best friends. And so they were constantly, you know, like, okay, let's have dinner together. You know, we can go out, but we would come over to each other's house or we would FaceTime or something. We all worked together. And so it was just good to be able to hang out with people and just, you know, to have them listen to me. If I felt like I just needed to talk about my dad for a little while, they would listen. If I wanted to not think about it, they would entertain me, you know, any kind of thing like that. And then our church family was so, so good to us throughout the whole thing just constantly praying for us and stopping by and bringing things to us and everything. And so that was such a necessity that you don't really know that you're going to need in that time afterwards. And I think just, you know, during the pandemic, I actually started like working out and that helped my mental state so much, you know, and I never really realized how much just moving your body could help clear your mind so much. And so that absolutely helped. I got a Peloton and it was so fun, you know, to just get down there and sweat it out and Mm -hmm. then just feel so refreshed and like, okay, I have a clear mind now. Let's get to work. So um, those are really the main things that I did to just kind of help that process along. Did you feel the impact of all these events most in your body or what was the impact on your, your emotional health? Yeah. I never realized how much, you know, like you could miss somebody so much that it physically hurts. You know, I feel like I've heard people say that and it just never clicked until now, you know. And so there were days where I would just be mentally exhausted coming home from work and I'm sad and I miss my dad. But then I can't dwell on that because there's other people's family members that are counting on me as part of the team to provide the best possible care. And so Yeah, I just mentally was so exhausted, but it's just, it's so crazy how you just, like us as humans are so resilient, you know, you just, you're tired and you want to quit, but you know, you can't. And so you keep on going and you get up every day and you go to work because that's what healthcare providers do. You know, we ignore everything about ourselves just because we know we have a job to do and that's to take care of other people. Mm, spoken like a true healthcare worker. <laughs> um, I'm curious, you know, you're talking about profound grief. And a lot of times people have a hard time determining the difference between grief and something like depression. So tell me about what was that like for you? Did you ever think that you might have depression or anxiety or a mental health concern? Yeah. Throughout, you know, pharmacy school, I was all I had friends that kind of dealt with depression and anxiety. And and I think 
as a pharmacist, I think it's just part of your genetic makeup (laughs) that you have anxiety. You know, we're Mm -hmm. so type A that I definitely think I have struggled with anxiety before. And that was definitely something that I noticed kind of picked up, you know, as I'm going through the grieving process. But I've never been one that I felt like I've always been very, very encouraging of my friends to go to therapy and everything, but I've never been to that point where I feel like, okay, now is my turn. I I think I need to go, you know, Mm -hmm. and I always thought, okay, you know, therapy is something that once you're having a hard time, then you know, it's time to go. But now more than ever, I've kind of come to this realization that you should never wait until you have a problem to go. You know, it's like, it's like medicine. We think so hard on preventative medicine. So why would I not think preventative therapy would be a great thing? (laughs) And so, and even like working out, we're so excited to tell people like, oh, I go to the gym. I have a Peloton, you know, I go every morning at 6 a.m. Like, why am I not proud enough to be like, oh, I go to therapy. You know, it's great. Like, we just, we, we're not there yet. And it's such a stigma that I hope, you know, is on its way out to where I work my body out. And yeah, I work my brain out too. Like they're just as important as the other, because that's just another way to help me fill my cup up to make sure that I can continue to pour out into other people. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, It's interesting that, you know, we work out to keep our bodies healthy and that doesn't seem to be stigmatized at all. You know, everybody would agree that's something we should all do, spend time. Yes. But you're saying it's a parallel that you should go to therapy to keep your mind and your emotions healthy. There's a question here for us to ponder, like, why is that stigmatized? Yeah, it's so important. And it's just, it's so crazy how, and one day it just randomly hit me. I was like, we're so, we, you know, I feel like, oh, I go to the gym and that sounds so impressive. So like, why can people saying I go to therapy not sound just as impressive? Why do we think like, oh, they must have issues. Like, you know, yeah, it's so, definitely. it's so crazy. I just, I hope that mindset is on its way to changing and people think it's just as cool to go to therapy as it is that you go to CrossFit or you do whatever, you know, I hope that just changes. What is your advice for what we might do about that as healthcare workers, as healthcare organizations to change that narrative? Yeah. So I know during the pandemic, they often send out emails, you know, saying we have access to people who want to talk to you if you feel like you want to talk just to try to help avoid burnout, because that's been such a huge issue during the pandemic um, for healthcare workers. And so, yeah, I think just constantly providing especially hospitals you know this is this is my only career so I don't know how it would look in other settings but you know hospitals especially just continuously reminding their employees like we have resources and it's not weird if you feel like you need to talk to somebody you know if it means you want to talk every week or you want to talk once a month or you just feel like you want to talk when you want to talk I think it's so important for the management and things like that to just encourage their employees. Like you're your best employee when you're taking care of yourself also. Mm -hmm. And so that I think has been so encouraging to actually see that happen and, and know that they care about burnout and they want you to take care of yourself so that you can help take care of others. I think as healthcare organizations, we've done a really good job of making resources available to people, but it's in this sort of opt in 
fashion, Mm -hmm. meaning like the services are here, but you have to be the responsible party and avail yourself of the resources. And so I think we'll be doing a better job if we sort of switch it so that the services are opt out instead of opt in. Like it's part of our culture that we give you these resources Everybody gets a behavioral health visit or a wellness visit. Everybody has access to some sort of exercise facility, maybe. And if you don't want that, you have to actively opt out. But we've built it into your work life. We've built it into the culture of our organization because we value it. That's an awesome point. Yeah. Just that phrasing, it makes it feel like more of the norm. Mm. Yeah. You know, and we've talked a lot about anxiety and depression and exhaustion and burnout on this podcast, but I think one of the things we haven't touched on so much is grief. You bring a different perspective to this conversation because of your your personal experiences. So I wonder, Heather, where do you think you are in the grieving process? I never really realized how weird grief is. You know, it's just there's days that you're like, okay, this is fine. You know, I'm sad and I miss him, but I'm good. And then there's days that you're just like, ugh, this sucks. And I'm really sad. You know, it's just, it comes in such waves. And I've seen so many quotes about, you know, grief just being this thing that it's like, your heart still has that love. It's just not really sure where to go. And so, and I think that's so true. You just, you have this, this feeling of, you know, you just, you miss that person so much. And, you know, we are, we're believers. And so I really think that, you know, one day I'll see my dad again Mm -hmm. and he'll have a body that has great kidneys and (laughs) no COVID. And so that, that really helps me. Um, But I think I'm, you know, I even, I went through an angry phase of grief where, you know, I was just sad that it was my dad, you know, He was awesome and he helped so many people. So why did it have to be him? But, you know, there's just, there's always a plan that's so much bigger than I could ever think up. Um, You know, and God's plan is a lot more perfect than mine could ever be. (laughs) And so I'm through that anger phase where, you know, for some reason it happened and I may understand that one day and I may never, and that's okay too. And so, I don't think I'll ever be, I don't think grief is ever finished. I don't think you're ever done with that. But I think it's just this constant moving process where you just, every day you figure out how you're going to deal with it for that day. Yeah. Well, and for those of us who haven't lost loved ones in the pandemic, I think it's such a wise, it's a wise statement of fact that grief is something that doesn't end. And you mentioned it comes in waves And I think about it as feeling more like three steps forward and two steps back. Yeah. Right, right. And I think that that's, I think how we all have to think about this post-COVID trajectory, right? That it's not going to be an easy course to recovery. And then some days you're going to feel good and some days you're not going to feel good. And maybe you won't even understand why you don't feel good. Exactly. It's it's very up and down and, and it, a person's recovery fluctuates over time. Yeah. And this, the whole pandemic has been such a weird time because it's so unprecedented where we don't know what to expect. And that's really scary for us to be okay with, you know, not knowing what tomorrow's going to look like or whatever. 
you know, once we finally got vaccines, like, is this going to really help or not, you know? And so it's just, it's been such an unknown territory that I think it's been very hard for us to just wrap our heads around and process the fact that it's okay if we don't know what tomorrow looks like, we'll figure it out. Yeah. I loved what you said about your heart is full of love, but but you don't know where the love should go. And it reminded me of something you said when we talked before that you have such a servant's heart. And I thought about, you know, this being so, I think, normal for healthcare professionals that we serve others. I wonder how much serving others has been part of your grief journey. Yeah, absolutely. And I think also, you know, I get that from being a healthcare worker, but I get that from both my parents. My mom is absolutely a servant to every meaning of the word. And my dad was too. And so I think it was just like ingrained in me to have that attribute. And so the whole time I was dealing with this process, I kind of just prayed that God would use this situation and me in this situation to whatever purpose it was supposed to be for. And so I hoped that his passing would would serve some bigger purpose. And, you know, we just, we continue to pray that, you know, and, and we may see the benefits of that and we may not. Um, but so many of his friends have just said, you know, like he was such a good person and it makes you want to be a better person, just remembering how mm-hmm. good he was. And so that just like blesses me so much to know that his friends were encouraged by his attitude mm-hmm. so often. And so, but yeah, so back to being just a servant, I think, you know, just constantly with my friends and my family, just always reaching out and saying like, okay, what can I do for you? Um, you know, everybody's going through a tough time and you sometimes you know what it is and sometimes you don't, but everybody's always going through stuff. And so I think just constantly being there as just somebody to listen to them or pray for them or bring them a meal or something, you know, just always have tried to just be that encourager and just, you know, I want to do something that's going to make your day better. And and I don't, I don't ever think that, you know, I'm going to do this so that you'll do it in return for me. I just, I think that's the biggest blessing that you can have on somebody. And that's just, that's how I get, you know, my energy is just by trying to be a light in somebody else's day. And, you know, you're talking about something that I think is so important for us. Healthcare communities have such a big job to do. And you're talking about compassion for others and serving others being sort of an essential part of that job. And I think that the other essential part of that job is that we serve ourselves as well as we serve our patients and our colleagues. And I think that, you know, through telling our stories and continuing to share with others and put others, prioritize other, reaching out to others and supporting others and asking how you're doing, that sort of, I think, moves the needle in terms of culture, the culture of the healthcare setting. Yeah, and, yeah, absolutely. You never realize how much you can make somebody's day even just a little bit better by just saying like, how are you today? What's going on? You know, what's up? Just reaching out and making them feel important and listened to. I think that's such a huge, huge necessity that people just don't even realize 
can have such a big effect on somebody's day by just being kind and just checking in on your friends and family. Yeah, I think that's a big lesson learned. Are there any other lessons learned, Heather, that come to your mind for us as a healthcare community? Honestly, I just think the biggest thing for me just through this whole pandemic and losing my dad has been, you know, that you just, you have to keep taking care of yourself, you know, and and that's what we've talked about. But I think it's so important to remember that you're worth taking care of, you know, and some days you might not feel like it, but you are and you have to in order to do your job and to take care of other people. And so we should never feel bad about making ourselves a priority. You know, I've seen like so many just funny things on social media about self-care and how huge that has been through the pandemic, you know, but it doesn't matter what your form of self-care is, whether it's, you know, you're going to do a facial mask or you're going to take a walk down around the park or whatever, whatever that looks like for you is so important to just continue to check in with yourself and make sure that you're, you know, just keeping yourself a priority and that way you can keep on making the best out of your day in order to take care of other people. Mm -hmm. I agree. I think that's so well said. And I'm just so privileged and honored that you shared your story with us today. I'm so thankful that you guys are are doing this. I've listened to so many. I just listened to the one with the infectious disease doctor yesterday, and it's just so encouraging. And I think it's really important for healthcare workers to get this opportunity to listen to other people just so that you feel validated and not alone that you're like, okay, I'm I'm validated in my feelings and, and other people are feeling these same things too about this uncertainty and unknown. It's been such a blessing to be able to listen to other people's experiences. You said something last time we spoke that I highlighted in my notes, which is that you need sometimes need to be reminded that my feelings are 100% okay. Yeah, it's so true. And that's kind of something that I've been trying to remind myself, you know, like I'm not somebody who wants to cry in front of other people, (laughs) but sometimes you just can't help it, you know, and that's okay. Everybody cries and it's fine. And so that's just been something that I've tried to remind myself of, you know, and I cry when I talk about my dad, but I don't ever want to stop. He deserves to be talked about so much. And so I'm just glad that I get to do that. I'm glad that we are giving you a way to do it. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you. Lift the Mask, Voices of Heroes in a Silent Pandemic, with Dr. John Santopietro, executive produced by Kevin M. Lynch, The Quell Foundation, and Mod Worldwide. Managing producer, Sarah Marshall, theme song by Musical Smile. The show is engineered and edited by Scott Waz and Steve Campagna of Philadelphia Post. Assistant audio editors, Sinead Doyle and Vlad Radu film editor at Mod Worldwide. Voiceover artist, Sinead Doyle. Research and development by Colleen Lowe, Nick Lee, Jessica Ripper, and Caitlin Spurlock. Special thanks to Renee Wilk and Brittany McCormick as associate producers. Please rate and review this show on Apple Podcasts and you might hear your review on a future episode. Got a question? 
Email The Quell Foundation at liftthemask at thequellfoundation.org for sponsorship information or to find out how you can share your story as a guest on a future episode. If you haven't already, please subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever great podcasts are downloaded. Also, please remember to share this podcast with friends and family who would enjoy this content. This is not a podcast for personal disclosure of suicidal thoughts or behaviors and is not a substitute for seeking help from a licensed mental health professional. If you are in crisis, please call 911 or go to your nearest emergency department for assistance. Call 1-800-273-TALK, that's 1-800-273-8255, or text HELP to 741-741 if you're thinking about suicide. The Quell Foundation is a registered 501c3 not-for-profit organization benefiting the over 62 million Americans living with a mental health illness. Tax ID 47 512 Eight three.